Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this chance to come together and to read and study and celebrate and enjoy you and hear from you and learn from you. God, we pray for the kids uh, up at Grace Place that you would watch over them, protect them, give the leaders an abundance of patience, an abundance of energy, an abundance of presence um, as they teach the kids, as they model and reflect to them what it means and what it looks like to know you, um, as they model and reflect your love for them. God, we, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to teach and, and pray and, and study and enjoy your presence through us. God, I pray that you would help us as a church continue to bind us together, strengthen our relationship, strengthen our ability to be the light in this neighborhood that we want to be. Lord, as we open your word today, God, you have a message for us, you have a word for us, and so I pray that you would share that with us, that I would get out of your way, that you would do what you need to do in our hearts and minds this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name, amen. So as I said, this is the Sunday in Advent, and so we're going to take the next few weeks to look at some very important people that made it possible for the arrival of Jesus to happen. So we are going to go back to the beginning of the story. Matthew 1. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. And Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Ebiud, and Ebiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Did you hear it? Did you, catch, did you catch the names that stick out? The stories that Matthew and God himself are pointing us to are in this genealogy. Now, I know it's Matthew 1, so I know everybody's got this one memorized front and back. You could all stand up and give me every name in order, reverse chronological order. I get that. I get it's old hat. I get that we're just so used to this chapter. But there are some unique names in this genealogy. There are some unique names should that, may, that should make us question why. 
There are unique names here, and I'm not talking about Zerubbabel or Jeconiah. Verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by, what's that name? Should be on the screen. Nope, verse 3. Thank you. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, all women. Verse 6, it says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Though she's not mentioned by name, we're pointed to the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. And then finally in verse 16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. Out of 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus, there are that are mentioned, only five women get a shout-out. It should produce in us a question of why. Why them? Why these women? Why should we know these stories? What is there to learn from and about here? And that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks, some of the women mentioned in this genealogy and what we can learn from them and their stories. So I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis 38. If you don't know where Genesis says, open the cover. It's the first book, and then flip a few pages. You're going to Genesis 38. I'm going to go to Genesis 3. I'll catch up to you in a few minutes. This is what happens when Pastor Tim doesn't preach for two weeks. I got a lot of time in the Bible. Genesis 3. Sin enters the world. The relationship between God and man is broken due to sin. But in the midst of the mess and chaos, God makes a declaration and a promise. He declares to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first time the gospel is preached, it's by God to Satan, letting him know exactly how this is going to play out, that eventually a human offspring would smash the head of the serpent. Though the serpent would get in a strike against his heel, he would ultimately be defeated. It is this promise of a set-apart one, of a holy one, of the Messiah, of God, that God's people would cling to for hundreds and thousands of years. In Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abram and tells him, leave your house, leave your land, leave your inheritance, leave everything, your heritage, and go to a new place that I'll tell you when you get there. And in that place, God would make from Abram a great nation. Abram would be blessed, and through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And as we read in Matthew 1, this blessing for all the families of the earth, this one who God would send would come from Abraham's line, from his lineage. It's known as the line of promise. You're going to hear that phrase a lot over the next few weeks. And so Abram and his wife Sarai trust and follow God. Eventually, after much waiting, when Abram, now known as Abraham, is 100, and his wife Sarai, now known as Sarah, is 90, she gives birth to a boy named Isaac. Isaac grows up and marries a woman named Rebekah. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau, and now a fork in the road has occurred. Two boys, the promise of God of this Messiah to come can only come through one of these two boys. Esau was a good son. He's loyal, he's hardworking, and he's the oldest. Everything points to him being the one to carry on this special lineage from God. Jacob was the younger son. He was a trickster, a liar, even conned his brother into selling him his birthright for a bowl of soup. 
He is not the kind of guy you would trust with your house for a night away, let alone be the one to carry on the promised line of God. And yet that's exactly what happens. It is Jacob who God chooses. Jacob who God calls to be part of the line of promise. And Jacob has a few different events happen to him from Genesis 28 to 35. I told you I'd catch up. I'm almost there. Including he wrestles God for a night. And after that, Jacob is renamed Israel. Through a series of marriages, Jacob, now known as Israel, has 12 sons. These 12 boys will grow up. They will take on wives. They will have families. And these 12 sons and their families will mark the 12 tribes of Israel. The, 12, the nation of Israel will come from these boys. From one of these tribes, the Messiah will come, this promised one. We find out later that the Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. Some might know the phrase referring to Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah because Jesus' bloodline will be connected to Judah. So of all the 12 boys, Judah is the one we should really be paying attention to. Now, Israel was not a great dad. He played favorites. More specifically, his two youngest sons, Joseph and Benjamin, numbers 11 and 12. Most specifically, number 11, Joseph. He treated Joseph differently, including giving him special gifts such as a multicolored coat, an amazing technicolor dream coat, if you will. Joseph didn't always get along with his brothers for a variety of reasons, and they were jealous of their father's affection for him. So in Genesis 37, I'm getting closer, Joseph's brothers want to kill him. Eventually, they're talked off the ledge. One of them says, now nah, we can't kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And they throw him in a pit to decide, okay, what do we do with him? While in the pit, one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, the guy we're supposed to pay attention to, we shouldn't kill our brother. Good job, Judah. Instead, he says, let's sell him and make some money off of him. And that's what they do. They sell him to some local traders as if he's just another object. They do this, and then they take that fancy coat that Joseph was also always wearing, they cover it in animal's blood, and they take it to their father. They say to their father in Genesis 37, verse 32, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Israel is overwhelmed with grief at the apparent death of his favorite son. He tells his family, I will never stop mourning over Joseph. I will die mourning for him. And that brings us to Genesis 38. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went a Dulamite. There we go. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. She yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chesrib when she was where she
Let me grab this mic thing. I got it. Hmm? Okay. Thanks, bud. Canaanites and Israelites were enemies for generations. They are the Capulets and the Montagues, Hatfields and McCoys, Bears and Packers fans. They just don't get along. There is in specific instruction for generations. Do not intertwine with the Canaanites. Do not associate. Definitely do not marry a Canaanite. They are wicked, idolatrous people. And that's exactly what Judah has done. This woman, whose name we never actually get, bears three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah finds a woman named Tamar to be the wife of his oldest son, Ur. Based on where he is living and the fact that his wife is a Canaanite, most would agree that Tamar is also a Canaanite. She is, at the very least, definitely not an Israelite. She is outside of God's people. Tamar and Ur marry. We don't know how long the marriage lasts, as we're told very quickly in verse 7. Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. No other details, no explanation, but all of a sudden, Tamar is a widow. Judah tells his secondborn, Onan, to do what would be considered the right thing and marry Tamar. It wasn't quite a law yet, but it was a common practice, a kind of understood family philosophy in those days. That if a man died before providing sons to his wife, it was the duty of his brothers to marry her and to give her sons. But the child that would be born would be considered the son of the brother who died because the living brother only acted in his place. Which means if a son was born, he would be due the inheritance which would have gone to the son who died. So in the case of Tamar, if she gives birth to a son, he would be due the inheritance that belonged to Ur, which would be the larger double amount that the rest of his brothers would get. So it would be the expectation that Onan, the second son, would marry Tamar, provide for her, care for her, try and make a baby, and if they have a son together, the inheritance would skip over Onan and go to the newborn. But if they don't have a son, if she never gets pregnant, then that inheritance that was due to Ur, that double portion would go to Onan on top of what he was already due. Onan realizes this. He can do math. And so after Onan marries Tamar, even though he had sex, he made sure she would never get pregnant, as we read in verse 9. The whole point of Onan marrying Tamar was, one, yes, to make sure she is protected and provided for, because at that time, widows in that day are the bottom of the social structure, and they needed protection. They needed provision. But mostly, number two, is to provide an heir to carry on the name of her dead husband and to provide for her when she got older. The kids would grow up and take care of their mom. Onan used Tamar for sex. He made an intentional choice multiple times over to avoid what would be the right thing to do. And while it wasn't law yet, later on the Israelites would have the law written this way. It wasn't law, it was still the common practice. 
Onan instead chooses to satisfy himself at the expense of Tamar and to ensure that he would not only be able to receive his own inheritance, but that of Ur as well. He is selfish in every way possible. Not only selfish, but it says in verse 10 that what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so God put him to death. He took advantage of another person. He abused this woman and God puts her, puts him to death. So we have two brothers, both evil and wicked, both dead. Merry Christmas. Tamar is now a widow twice over. They say it is better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. I don't know if that's the case for Tamar. She didn't ask for any of this. She didn't have much say in the matter. Judah chose her, and back then women really didn't get a vote in this kind of thing. It wasn't her fault that Ur was evil. She isn't the one who was using and abusing Onan. She didn't make him do something that God saw as wicked, but that's not how Judah sees it. In verse 11, Judah tells Tamar, Go back to your father's house till Shelah, the youngest of the brothers, grows up so you can marry him. But we see in that verse 11 that Judah's motives weren't pure. He's worried. In his mind, he has two dead sons, and they're both dead after marrying this woman. Clearly, she's the common denominator. She's at fault. She's the reason they're dead. Never mind that his sons were wicked and evil in the sight of God. Judah isn't even taking that into consideration. It's been years since that way of thinking was on Judah's mind. Remember, he left home. He's been living amongst the Canaanites. He's embraced living disconnected from his family and from the God of his family. He doesn't realize the actions that he has done have generational consequences that are playing out in real time before his eyes. No, he instead blames Tamar. And he sends her back to her father's house where she would be treated as a burden, a reject, a disappointment, and barely a person. It is Judah's responsibility as her father-in-law to protect and provide for her. It is Judah who should be making a way and accommodations. Instead, he abandons her. He had the authority to allow her to remarry. He could have said, you know what, never mind. This is done. Go find a new family. Go find someone who you can marry. Go find someone to take care of you. Instead, he tells her, remain a widow. Stay locked into this position. Much like what he did to Joseph, he's fine allowing her to wither away, just get away from me. He doesn't care about her future. We get to verse 12. Time passes and Judah's wife dies. Some time of mourning, after some time of mourning, he decides to go on a boy's trip with his buddy Hera. It was time for the sheep to be sheared. Basically, it's time to get paid. They would shear the sheep, you'd take the wool, and you'd go into town, and you would sell it and make some serious money. And so I think the conversation went something like, hey, Judah, I know things have been rough. I know things have been hard for you. Let's get out of town. Let's go get some cash. Let's make a weekend of it. Word gets back to Tamar that her father-in-law is done mourning and is going on a trip. And by this point, it is clear to her that even though Shelah is old enough to marry her, that wasn't going to happen. Tamar puts two and two together and realizes Judah has given up on her and is going to let her waste away as a widow. So Tamar executes a plan. Pastoral caveat. I don't agree with the plan. I don't like the plan. But it happens. 
and there is no biblical commentary that condemns what she does. So we're going to talk about it. Verse 14. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, for she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had, her, she had covered her face. She sheds her clothes that would identify her as a woman in mourning and as a widow. She puts on a veil to cover her face. She sits on the roadside where she knows Judah would have to cross. Verse 15, Judah sees her, assumes she is a prostitute, and propositions her. They have a full-on conversation back and forth. He doesn't recognize her. Prostitutes on the side of the road were not uncommon at this time. Many of the idolatrous gods in the area were fertility gods and were worshipped through sex. And so many of these temples employed prostitutes as part of worship. And so while it wasn't uncommon, it doesn't make it right. And Judah doesn't seem to have any kind of hesitation propositioning this woman who he thinks is just a, pro a prostitute, not knowing it's his daughter-in-law. They go back and forth. He promises to give her a goat from his flock. While, and while we don't get any commentary here, again, it doesn't seem like he's got any moral hesitations about what's going on. He says, I'll give you a goat from my flock as payment. And she says, in the meantime, I want collateral. Verse 18, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. She tells him to give, him, give her his signet, cord, and staff, items that are personal to Judah. Your signet was tied around a cord that you wore on your neck. Your signet was kind of like a ring. It was your personal stamp, your identifier. You closed business deals. You sent letters. This was the thing that identified you. Your staff was custom-made to you. It was yours, probably had, your, had some kind of marking from your signet on it. It belonged to you. What he did here was like when you leave something and you need to come back and you give someone your driver's license and says, here, hold on to this, I'll come back. It was a personal identifier that said, this is Judah, I will come back. Once the payment was sent, they slept together and once again, he doesn't even recognize as his own daughter-in-law. That's how much he cared about her. After it was over, she leaves, she puts on her widow garments and acts like nothing happened, but something major has happened. She's gotten pregnant. Verse 20, Judah gets a goat and he sends his buddy Hira to go and fulfill the payment he promised to the prostitute. What a nice guy. Hira goes looking for her and can't find her, even asking some of the locals, where is that cult prostitute that was on the roadside? The locals don't know anything about it. We don't have one of those on that road. So Hira returns to Judah, tells him, look, I went looking for her. Nobody knows what I was talking about. I can't find her. Do you want me to continue? Do you want to come with me? We can go find this woman. Rather than allow word to get out and his reputation to be attacked, he doesn't want to be laughed at. Judah decides just forgo the items he gave up as collateral and to pretend like it never happened. Though it's a pain, I'll go back to the DMV. I'll get a new license. Not a big deal. Judah's character. He sold his brother like a lamp at a garage sale. 
While his dad was mourning the loss, he bails and leaves his family. He starts a new family with people he was explicitly told to stay away from his entire life. When Tamar was in need of help, he ships her off to wither away. Now he decides to just try and move on from this whole prostitute situation as if nothing happened. Selfish, apathetic, runs from responsibilities and conflicts. This is Judah. This is the guy who is the head and namesake of the tribe of which the Son of God, the Savior of the world, comes from. When Israel is dying and praying blessings over his sons, he says of Judah, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. We've seen nothing about his character that would make us think this guy is the one to watch. He's the one worthy enough to be included in the line of promise. But the story isn't over yet. We get to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Three months go by, Judah finds out Tamar has prostituted herself and gotten pregnant. We don't know who told him, but all of a sudden he's real concerned with her life choices. Bring her out and let her be burned is his response. It's even more sharp than that. In the Hebrew, his actual reply is just two words. Yatsa sarap. Bring her, burn her. He doesn't ask for details. He doesn't want to know the story. He doesn't question what is being told of him. He doesn't even ask her anything. Bring her, burn her. Interesting, he had no problem with prostitution three months prior. See, he keeps his own secrets and shame buried and deep within. Instead, he wants to make an example of his daughter-in-law. He's completely blind to this point of his own hypocrisy and sin and instead judges and condemns her, not knowing any details. And those details are massive. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. You're right, Judah. I played the role of a harlot and now I'm pregnant. You recognize these? Do you recognize? Years before, Genesis 37, 32, Judah and his brothers hold up a coat covered in blood and ask their father, do you recognize this? It's a way to trick and deceive him and hide their sin. Now here, years later, Judah sits staring at his own signet cord and staff being asked, do you recognize this? Judah, do you recognize who you once were? Do you recognize who you have become? Do you recognize just how far you have wandered into the depths of depravity? You have made choice after choice to abandon and reject the ways of God, and it doesn't have to be this way, Judah. You ever go swimming in an open body of water? The current can range from so powerful it's obvious you can see it moving to so subtle you don't even feel it when you're in it. You're swimming, you're playing, and you look up and all of a sudden that place where you left your towel or the tree or the lifeguard stand, the thing you were using as a marker, somehow is now way over there. And so you 
swim back over and you line yourself back up and you go back to playing, you're having fun, you look up again and once again that towel, that lifeguard stand, that tree has drifted. It just seems to keep on drifting. But it's not the lifeguard stand that drifted. It's you. That's what sin does to us. With each decision, with each choice that is counter to what God wants for us, we drift further and further from our home base. Sometimes we don't even recognize it or notice it. And even when we do, we often justify and try and normalize it. We're not that far away. It's not so bad. I can get right with God whenever I want to. Everyone else is playing over here. What's the big deal? It's just my thing. It's not affecting anybody else. It is what it is. Nobody's perfect. But if you aren't careful, the current of sin will take you so far away that you can't see home base anymore and eventually will throw you into some rocks and kill you. But before that can happen, Judah has this moment. This encounter, God uses Tamar as Judah's reckoning. God uses her to bring clarity to his mind and soul. She is responsible for him opening his eyes and seeing what he had become. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, today might need to be that day for you. I, I pray that let, let that moment, let this moment be that moment. If you are caught in the current of sin you might not see it, you might not recognize it, you might not realize what's going on, but God in this moment is telling you, look up and start asking, do you recognize where you are? Do you recognize how far you have walked from him? Do you recognize how scary of a situation you have found yourself in? And can you recognize he's calling you back to himself right now? In verse 26, Judah does recognize. Judah identified and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. Judah was determined to let Tamar be cast aside. He knows he was at fault. When all she wanted, what drove her, what led her to make the choices and carry out the plan that she did was making, was so that she could honor the commitment to Ur and really honor the commitment to Judah. Judah chose her. Judah brought her into his family and then threw her away, but she chose to stay committed to the family she entered into and was committed to seeing an heir be born to this family, to see the lineage, the family name, the inheritance continue, and without knowing it, to see the line of promise that would lead us to the Messiah continue. She wanted to do what was right for the family, so Judah, even as he was actively sought to remove her, she's trying to do what is right by him. In this scenario, Judah knew he had messed up. He knew he was in the wrong when it came to how he treated her, and all she did was continue to persevere on behalf of the very man who wronged her. Most commentaries see that final sentence as Judah welcoming her into the household. He didn't know her again, meaning he didn't sleep with her again. He couldn't give her in marriage to his youngest son after what had transpired between them, but he provides for her, which is going to be real important because now she's pregnant. Nothing about this story or this family is easy or without controversy or difficulty or conflict. So is the same for her pregnancy. When it comes time for her to give birth, there are twins in her womb. And while in labor, we see in verse 28 
One of the babies puts a hand out. The midwife takes a piece of thread on it, wraps it around his wrist, and says, that one's the oldest. The hand goes back inside. We're not getting into that. Something is going on inside the womb of Tamar. And ultimately, it is the other son, the one without the thread, who is technically born first. His name is Perez, which means a breach. After him comes, technically, his older brother, Zerah. And just like we had with Jacob and Esau, we once again have a fork in the road when it comes to the line of promise. And as we read in Matthew, it is Perez, the son of Judah and Tamar, who will carry on the lineage that will lead to Boaz by Rahab and Obed by Ruth. And eventually, King David and many generations later, a baby boy will be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, the son of Mary and Joseph, Jesus the Christ. I asked the question earlier, why? Why Tamar? Why this story? Why does Matthew, and more importantly, why does God mention her in Matthew 1? I think it's for every reason that this chapter has made us uncomfortable and awkward, that every reason that as I've been prepping this sermon, I didn't want to preach this sermon. For all of the lies and abuses and sexual immorality and selfishness and evil and wickedness and all the things that fill this story, that's why Tamar is mentioned. Because no one in this account is totally pure in the motives or actions. It is a messy, broken story of messy, broken people. And it is from the messy brokenness that generations later, the savior of the world will come. There's a kid's song that plays in my house quite often. It's by a, um, a band called Slugs and Bugs. Check them out, they're good. One of the choruses of the song, it says, God makes messy things beautiful when you put them in his hands. God makes messy things beautiful like only he can. Tamar is regarded as an account of God's blessing and grace. At the end of the book of Ruth, people hold up the house of Perez, the son of Tamar and Judah, as one to be desired. Tamar's legacy is one of favor. Her perseverance for righteousness' sake is rewarded in the legacy that she leaves behind. She persevered through abuse and abandonment and oppression, and for her efforts, for her perseverance, she is grafted into the line of promise. Tamar is for us a beacon of prophetic light. Her inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus points us to what Christ came to do. It points us to what we've been studying here all year as we've looked at the book of Acts. This change that happens through Christ, to see the people of God, the family of God grow from just God and the Israelites exclusively to include Samaritans and Canaanites and Moabites and Greeks and Romans and anyone and everyone who would put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Tamar shows us that the plan has always been to include all of humanity. The promise to Abraham was that he and his descendants would be a blessing to all the people of the earth. Not just the good ones, not just the right ones, but all the people. Tamar is a reminder of God's promise and faithfulness and grace. All are welcomed into the family of God through Jesus. There is no cookie-cutter specific person or archetype you need to try and cram your life into so that you can be the right kind of Christian. 
Tamar is proof. She doesn't do it all correctly. She isn't perfect, but she is part of the history that gets us to Jesus, that gets us to the cross, that gets us to the empty tomb, and gets us to have a chance to be made right with God through faith in Jesus. Her perseverance and pursuit of doing what is right causes a fundamental shift in the people of God. Judah is a changed man. The next 12 chapters tell the story of Joseph and how he ends up rescuing his people. And it is Judah who puts his life on the line. He sees a change of heart. The selfishness has gone away and he puts his life on the line. He offers himself as a possible sacrifice on behalf of one of his brothers. He's a changed man and because of that, the tribe of Israel, the full 12 tribes are reconciled together and saved. And because they were reconciled and saved, it would lead to the birth of the one who comes to reconcile and save us all from our sins. Save us all from the wrath of God. Jesus' birth is the byproduct of generations of sinful people living in a sinful world, trusting and dependent on God to be faithful. And because God is faithful, Jesus was born. We can be forgiven and we can trust and know that as we live in our own advent, as we wait on the arrival of Christ, that he will come because Christ promised he would come back and we know God keeps his promises. A day is coming when he will arrive, when the waiting is over, when we will experience his arrival, the coming, the joy and presence of our Savior and King. In the meantime, as we wait, we do so actively. And I pray that we would wait as a people who when we stray, not if, but when, can confess and repent and run to God to find safety and forgiveness. May we be a people who will endure for righteousness' sake. And may we be a people that declares that all are welcome into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. You're good and faithful and just and right and holy. When we consider who we are in comparison to who you are, it is humbling and overwhelming. God, we thank you for not casting off the broken, messy people. We thank you for always having another seat at the table that there is always more room. We thank you for grace, for getting what we don't deserve, because we don't deserve to have a relationship with you. We don't deserve to be right with you, but because of Jesus, we can be. God, we thank you for stories like this one, hard, messy, uncomfortable, awkward stories. They're to show us this is who you are. You are a God of grace, and you take what is messy, and you make it beautiful. You take what is broken and you put it back together and you make something awesome out of it. It is overwhelming at times that you call us to be part of what you are doing in this world, that you call us to be lights in the world. It is overwhelming and at times exhausting. But we know that you are with us. We know that you wouldn't leave us to try and do it on our own without equipping us and giving us all that we need to be able to live into this role you have called us to. As this is our first Sunday, God, we, we think about hope. 
And we know from Scripture, you have told us that hope is not a wish, but a, a certainty. God, we thank you that we can have a hope, a certain, firm foundation in Christ. That while life can be overwhelming and dark and messy, there is stability in you. God, we thank you and we praise you. Amen.